All right. Well, it is good for us to be in worship together here this morning. Uh, if you are newer with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and um, I wanted to say greetings not only to this room, but if you're, you're newer and unfamiliar, we actually have two worship experiences happening at the same time, both here and about 100 yards east of here in our East Auditorium. And as of last week, if you maybe weren't with us last week or on vacation or new again, we are in the beginning of a grand experiment with the First Christian Church in Lovington, where they are now participating in our services, or at least the sermon portion of it via video. So hello to you all in the West, hello in the East, and also to our friends down in Lovington. And um, what's going on in Lovington is uh, it's uh, a church that was actually founded by the same Joseph Hotstetler that founded this church in 1834. And so both congregations founded by the same guy are now, uh, as of next year, will be 185 years old. I mean, that to think that we predate the Civil War is pretty wild uh, understanding. And so it's just neat to see the way in which as they're looking to their future and our leadership teams are talking about how this partnership will play out and some of that's still to work out yet, just the full circle story of, of how that's all coming together. So excited for that and uh, excited to get into God's word all together in all these locations uh, here this morning. And so in every space, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack that you can use. And if you don't have a Bible at all, um, at uh, either location, you can take one uh, as um, a gift from us to you. So you can have a Bible. So there's some folks walking around in the east and then in the pew racks in Lovington, there's some Bibles there too. So we can all follow along together in God's word. And uh, what we're going to be looking at today, as uh, the video suggested, is uh, a, you could say, a popular or most quoted passage from the Bible. That's what we're looking at uh, in this series in July, these verses and passages that we are familiar with because they seem to be most plastered around us. They are the most popular verses in our day, whether they are imprinted on something or screen printed on something or hung in frames on our walls. Uh, they, they seem to be the verses that most surround us. And uh, that's a good thing. That's not a bad, that's a biblical thing to have God's word all around us uh, so that it's not just only visibly around us, but it would be on our hearts. In fact, Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament, which arguably would have been the most quoted passage for the people in Bible times, it says it this way that these commandments are to be on your hearts, and in order to do that, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so what we wanna do is look at these verses, these passages that we do find you know, on our door frames and on coffee mugs and on bumper stickers and things of that nature. And we wanna take a deeper dive, a deeper look at these verses and passages that we might otherwise miss almost in, because in, in fact that they are so common. They're, they almost become white noise because we've seen them so much, but they are God's word and that there's a lot going on underneath the hood of those verses that we might not catch at first blush, look. And so we're gonna dig into it a little more so that it can be Deuteronomy 6 impressed all the more on our hearts. And the way that we want to do that, not only in this series, but frankly in every passage that we ever wanna look at in the Bible in any setting, is we wanna look at, you could say, the context of that verse and that passage. And the context is the understanding that God's word, while it is 
100% absolutely alive and active for us today, was first written to an audience 2,000 or more years ago in a very specific culture, a specific situation with a specific audience from a specific author that God is using to write his word, that that would have been the context that God's word would have been originally written in, and we wanna understand that as best we can so that we can most accurately and appropriately apply it today in our context. So that's what we're doing. And so today, we're gonna get to the context of what could be maybe the most heard full book of the Bible you've ever heard, because if you've ever walked into a funeral, it's hard to walk out without hearing this passage, and that is the infamous Psalm 23. And if you don't recognize it at first blush, you might recognize some of its most quoted lines, such as, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Or the one that I think kind of zeroes us in at funerals. Um, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so that word death um, must be some sort of trigger word that assumes that pastors and preachers have to find that and use that in funeral settings. And so we find them in funeral settings. And and it had me wondering, you know, is this, as much as it's used in funerals in our day, you know, was this a passage that was utilized in, in Bible times in their context for funerals in their situations? I wasn't sure, but not necessarily. And so let's dig in. We'll understand and dig into the context of Psalm 23. What we're going to do is we're going to read through it, and then we'll go back and kind of, you know, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, read a little, and work our way through the context of that passage. So I invite you to follow with me. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing, or I shall not be in want, depending on the translation. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, the word of the Lord. And so as we work our way back through that and start to unearth the context of Psalm 23, it's pretty clear we don't actually have to get real far or do a whole lot of digging before we even get into the psalm that we already have some context given to us right at the header. We have the author, as it says, a psalm of David. And a psalm is just another, uh, it's kind of a big Bible word for a song or a prayer or a praise that David would have written uh, for us and for us now as readers about who God is. Now, David, he was, um, the character, this author here, he was uh, known as and is known as the greatest king that Israel has ever had. But before becoming king, he served a simple job as a shepherd boy who watched over and cared for sheep. And so what David is doing in this psalm, he's tapping into these two professions, if you will, using these two metaphors where he flips the script, where instead of looking at himself as a shepherd and a kingly host who would have, you know, hosted many banquets and dinners and tables and all these kinds of things, he flips the script and uses these as metaphors to describe the very character and nature of who God is, both as a shepherd 
and as a host. And so let's dig into David's metaphors um, as we look at the word of God as penned by David, okay? So verse one, that first metaphor, shepherd. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now this is pretty incredible just in this literal first five words of the psalm already tells us a ton about who our God is. In that just noticing the proximity between those two nouns, those two words for who God is, is both Lord and then three words later, shepherd. Essentially, David is saying, time out, the almighty, all created, powerful being of God of the universe chooses, two words later, three words later, depending on your count, to be a shepherd to take on what you could say the menial task of shepherding me, of shepherding you. David would say it this way in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 8. He says, who am I that you are mindful of me? He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and that you would care for him, that you would shepherd him? Who is, well, you could say we know who God is, but that he would then be mindful of just me. And so we start with God is God. In fact, that's what we looked at last week in the Jeremiah 29, 11 passage. It starts with, we start with who God is. We start with God is God. And who is this great God? He is like a shepherd who cares and is mindful of me. And so the verse goes on, verse one. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. It says, when the Lord is my shepherd, I lack no thing. Other translations say, maybe the ones you're more familiar with in funeral settings, said, I shall not be in want. You could argue the most literal translation of this is that there is, as a result of the Lord being my shepherd, there is nothing else wanting within me. The Apostle Paul would say it this way later in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, in the midst of some great difficulties, he has this thorn in his side is how he's describing this difficult time. And he asks three times for God to take it away. And God does not take it away. What God does is he responds. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, which Paul accepts and lives by this understanding. Okay, God, you are enough for me. Your grace is sufficient for me. I, there's nothing else wanting within me when I have your grace. In fact, I love the uh, song lyric by the artist Chris Tomlin who sums up this verse this way. He says, all of you is more than enough for all of me. All of you is more than enough for all of me. When the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. There's nothing else wanting within me. When the Lord is our shepherd. Okay, and so because, and this is what we've got to understand, when the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. It is a conditional statement. It is a conditional statement that if verse one, you could say, if this is not true of you, well, then verses two through eight really are rendered null and void. Because here's the truth. Here's the reality. Here's what's true of every single one of us in the room. We all have a shepherd. Make no mistake, every one of us on the planet, we have a shepherd. It might not be the Lord, but we all have a shepherd. We all have, you could say that there's something that's guiding us, that's leading us, that's driving us, that's shepherding us in some direction. It could be some other person on the planet, maybe some unhealthy dependency that they are the ones that seem to be controlling and leading and guiding everywhere we go. It could be some you know, acquisition or pursuit that is leading us and guiding us and driving us towards something that's shepherding us along in our lives. 
You might just say, you know what? I'm my own shepherd. There's nothing else shepherding me. I am my own shepherd. But regardless of who it is, we all have a shepherd. And everyone in the source of that shepherd, they are looking for that shepherd to be enough. They're looking for it to be enough and they want to get enough of it to where they can get to that point where they can say, okay, now I lack nothing. Now there's nothing else whining within me. I shall not be in want because I have enough of whatever that it is, whatever that shepherd is. But the problem is, the problem is there is only one shepherd that will ever get us to the point where we can proclaim now. Now I lack nothing. And so verse one, don't miss, it is a conditional statement. It is when the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. When the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. When the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing else wanting within me. When the Lord is my shepherd, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough. When the Lord is your shepherd, then all of him is more than enough for all of you. When the Lord is my shepherd. And so upon hearing verse one, it's like, okay, Sign me up, I'm in. Where, where do I sign? The Lord is my shepherd? Okay, I'm in for that. Well, please sign here, verse two. First three words. He makes me. Uh-oh. He makes me. Makes me. I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody making me do anything. You know, that's a problem. Makes me. Let's, let's hear David out here. He, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, that sounds all right. He leads me beside quiet waters. Well, that's pretty nice. Okay, I'm, I'm in for that. Verse three, it says, he refreshes my soul. Well, now this is getting good. And then he guides me along right paths. Other translations say along paths of righteousness. And, and what is this? What are these paths of righteousness? Well, this is where we sign on to obedience and the following of the shepherd's ways. We are following God's will and ways. That's what it means to sign on as the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd means I'm gonna obey and follow and trust that the shepherd's ways are actually the best ways to live life. That the way that he records and directs in his word is actually the best way of life. That's what the paths of righteousness are. And so when you sign on to the Lord as your shepherd, you believe that the ways that God lays out are actually the best ways of life. Like when God tells you it is actually better to live a life as a truth teller rather than wondering what lie you got yourself backed into and have to cover up. That, that You know, it's actually a better way of life to live a life as a person who tells the truth in all situations and at all times. It's better, it's a best kind of life to, to live a life of integrity. Uh, the word integrity literally means whole, meaning that you are who you are, whether you are here at work or at home or by yourself, that that is actually the best way to live life. That we trust our shepherd to say, you know what, the best way to live life is that when I'm running my mouth, I'm not running my mouth in gossip or slander or tearing someone else down, that the words that are coming out of my mouth are gonna be encouraging, uplifting, and helpful, that that's, that's the best way to live life, that it's actually the best way to live life to not envy and covet other people's stuff, to not envy the stuff of this world that other people in this world have of this world. That it's actually the best way of life to, to not commit adultery, to not do so physically, emotionally, or even as Jesus said, in our hearts because it messes us up, it messes our relationships up. It is not the best way to live life. And so 
When we pursue paths of righteousness, we recognize that it is actually, functionally, the best way to live life. That it is, as John 10, 10, and 11 would say, that I have come to give you life and life to the full, that this is the kind of life that Jesus has for us. It's the best life. And it's when we follow that best life, when we live and go along those right paths, and when we mess up, we know that we have thanks be to God for the good shepherd who died for us, forgiveness for when we miss it, we still pursue by the power of the Holy Spirit those right paths, and when we're walking along those paths that the shepherd is guiding, we then discover through those paths of righteousness those green pastures, those still waters, and the refreshing of our souls. You see, Too often we treat God's word like a buffet, like, yeah, the the green pastures, the still waters, the soul thing, like, man, give me some of that, but do, and we pick and choose. But the problem is, you don't get the green pastures, refreshed soul, and still waters without the shepherd's path of righteousness that leads us there. And so as we follow the shepherd along these paths to all these good things, we recognize, as it says in the verse two, that the reason he does this is really twofold. It's ultimately, it says, verse two at the end, for his name's sake. That all of this is about bringing glory to God. But don't miss, again, it's the best life for you too. And so everything that God has for us is for your best, it's for your ultimate best, but ultimately for God's glory. Everything he lays out for us is the best life. It's for your best, which brings him ultimately all the glory, which is why we're on the planet. And so how do we do that? How do we continue to get God's best and give him glory? Well, we see in verse four that that even takes place in the lowest of the lows, that we get his best even at our worst. Verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, That essentially that says when the Lord is your shepherd, that the darkest valley, and then arguably that that darkest valley we face in this life is that death or the death of a loved one. Uh, You know, that, that darkness, that death, ultimately, it has no power over the shepherd. Because to the shepherd, it is just a shadow. It is a shadow. It looks big, it looks scary, but not to the shepherd. Because, verse four, we will fear no evil, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me in the midst of these valleys. And so we see here that who our God is, that when we are at our worst, when we are in the valleys that life throws our way, is when the strength of the shepherd is at its best. That he leads us, this is a key word here, through the valley. He leads us through the valley, which means the valley is not our story. When we're in the middle of the valley, it sure feels like our story. It feels like it's always been, it'll never end, that it's transcending everything, but it's not. The valley is just a chapter in the story. The story is, if it's true in verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. The story is the story of the Lord is your shepherd who's moving you through the chapter in the valley, moving you through Babylon as we looked at last week. And so how does the shepherd do that? It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, for a shepherd, a rod would have been this heavy club that would have been used to beat off enemies, and the staff would have been this long pole to guide the sheep along. And so the Lord is our shepherd, the kind of God, the kind of shepherd that we serve or that serves us in this remarkable cosmos thing going on, that what he's doing with us is that we have a shepherd who in the midst of the valley is defending us and guiding us through that darkest valley. The Lord is my shepherd. 
that's who our God is. And so David paints who our God is with the shepherd understanding, and then he makes it even more personal. He moves from the illustration of a shepherd and a sheep to now God as a gracious host. So he takes it deeper, verse five. He says, David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And so these illustrations, this anointed head, the idea of being anointed with oil would have been the sign of blessing. It would speak to the host's gracious welcome at his table, that he's graciously welcoming us at his table. And then as we sit at the the table, the overflowing cup would have spoken to his lavish provision. Not only do I have enough, but it's overflowing, or as Paul and then Chris Tomlin said later, all of you is more than enough for all of me. And and then really to grab a full hold of the context of Psalm 23 here is um, really this line that, I'll be honest, has tripped me up every time I've ever heard or even read it in uh, the context of a funeral anywhere else, where it says this. It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And that one is, I'm like, I'll be honest, as I look at that and I read it at first blush, I'm like, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies? I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, you know, God, as a gracious host, it would be really great if you would just seat me at a new table. I don't get this seat me at the table with the enemies. How about we just leave those people behind and we find a new table? God, like, that's what would make more sense. That's what I would ask the hostess to do at, you know, a restaurant or something like that. And so what is that all about? What does it mean that God wants to lay out a table in the presence, sitting next to our enemies? Well, if you'll allow me to illustrate with another story from scripture that I think really paints uh, what is taking place in this psalm. There's a story in Daniel chapter three, uh, which is in the setting where God's people have been exiled to Babylon, and so they're you know, outside of their land, and they're in with all these false gods and weird understandings of, of how life is supposed to go. And in the midst of that, all of God's people are supposed to bow down and worship this image of the earthly king, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And there's these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says, no. I'm not bowing down to anyone but the Lord our God. And they said, okay, but the consequence for that is we're gonna chuck you in this fiery furnace. And they said, you know what? Even if God, he's gonna deliver us either here in this life or in the next, but either way, we're not bowing down. So sure enough, the uh, king has them thrown into this fiery furnace and out of anger, he has it turned up seven times uh, the, the normal temperature or whatever because I guess burning alive can happen lots of different ways. And so they throw him in and we would think, okay, God, aren't you gonna deliver them from this fire? You know, this is the story as you're kind of pretending like you don't know what happens if you don't know what happens. And you think, okay, God's gonna deliver them. He's gonna rescue them, not gonna be thrown into the furnace. Well, they are thrown into the furnace. But what happens next is what catches our attention. Daniel 3.25, the Babylonian you know, guard or whatever that's looking on says this. This is what they see in the furnace. They say, look, I see four men so three were thrown in, and they say, now I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and they said that the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, the earliest Christian commentators understood this fourth man to be none other than the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the furnace. 
And so what we see in this story, and just frankly, after a lot of years of doing life with you all, that more often than not, even though we pray and we ask God, please deliver us from the furnace, please seat us away from these enemies, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, it seems that God tends to deliver us in the furnace before delivering us from the furnace. Does that make sense? That he delivers in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of the valley, in the midst of our enemies, before he delivers us from them. But our prayer is always for the latter. We always want from, right? I mean, I, that's my prayer. Oh, God, if you would just get me out of this. I mean, how am I, you know, it, for you, maybe it's, you know, God, if you could just get me out of this department. It's toxic. The people here are awful. They're backstabbers. I'm never going to advance in my career here. If you could just get me out of this department to a new department, then it would be better. God, if you could just, you know, I know some of you students have already gotten your, like, who your teacher is for next year. And I know it's so awful that, that why are we talking about school? It's like the beginning of July. But you get this information, you're like, no, anyone but that teacher. God, if you could just get me out of that class, or maybe you know some of the other kids that are gonna be in that class. Oh God, not with them. If, if God, if you could just deliver me from, if you get me out of that classroom. You know, maybe it's a, a neighborhood that you live in. It's like, oh God, if we could just move out of this place, or if they could just move out. You wanna be delivered from, but God tends to deliver us in the midst, it would seem, before he delivers us out. If you could get us delivered in the furnace before he would deliver us away from it. And so, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter, you could say, what table, valley, um, furnace that we are facing in life, um, we are reminded that we have a God who wants to deliver us in it as well as from it. And I think about it, again, I've, whether it's through an email or we have this prayer list where there's this group of people who pray for the needs that come into the life of the church or there's just conversations in the lobby or honestly just looking out at some of the faces, some of the conversations we've had, I have seen the kinds of enemies that just, frankly, pull up a chair to your table. You know, it is, the story, I can't, we did a thing, um, with a staff prayer deal just, I don't know, maybe two months ago, where we just took all the names of the people in our church who have been diagnosed with and dealing with cancer, and it was overwhelming. Not just the length, but just some of the ages of uh, some of the kids that and these enemies that are just pulling up tables or pulling up chairs to our table in our lives. The losses that you all have faced. Just an enemy just pulling up a chair right to our table. More times than not, we hear of the stories of financial challenges where, um, you know, we do everything we can to help when things are upside down or sideways or turned around and, and maybe you're, enemy that's pulled up a chair is you don't have any idea how you're going to get on the other side of this. And maybe it's directly related to a job situation. Maybe it's not financial related. Maybe it's just the job situation is just terrible. And you're just like, this enemy is pulled up a table, pulled up a chair, excuse me, to my table. Or maybe it's just because of family or friends or again, where you live. There's just, it's just, there's just crazy people. I mean, look at this chair. It's just cray cray. These crazy people just show up in my life. And frankly, they're pulling up chairs to my table, these enemies, these difficulties, and I start to wonder if I'm the one that's going crazy. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not sleeping well, I'm stressed out, you know, I'm not eating because I have no appetite because I'm just nauseous or sick or whatever of everything that's going on because these enemies that are coming against me. And you start to wonder, am I the one going crazy? And you start to wonder, am I my own worst enemy in all this? But then we read. God 
prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. And so what does that mean? I still don't know what that means. Well, let's look again at the context. We look at the context of David. David, remember, started as a young man, as a shepherd, who would have had to fend off, you know, some pretty difficult enemies, lions. You know, I don't know if you've ever killed a lion. It's on my bucket list, but I have not yet done this. So that's something that David did. He had to fend off an enemy lion. Uh, Later, as a teenager, he's the youngest among his brothers, and they're all off uh, fighting this war against the Philistines and basically becomes an errand boy. And his dad sends him to, you know, deliver pizzas, essentially deliver lunch to these, to these brothers of his. He gets there and there's this giant Goliath who is taunting God's people. And then he steps in to fight the giant. And if you know the story, literally David goes into a valley. It's the Valley of Elah where he is, you know, pretty short and you got this giant. So he is actually physically, you want to talk about walking through the valley of shadow of death? He is literally in a valley under the shadow of a giant who's ready to put him to death. David knows about the valley of the shadow of death. But we know God is faithful, and through that sling and a stone, he defeats Goliath, and then he gets his promotion. He's uh, under King Saul at the time, and he becomes King Saul's armor bearer. And so as Saul's right-hand man, he would have certainly had many opportunities to sit at a table with his king. But at the same time, this king, Saul, becomes jealous of David and his success and then becomes um, really hunted. The very, the very king who he serves becomes the enemy at his table to where actually you know, he gets upset and throws spears at David. I mean, that's, that's, no, that's no family dinner there. And so David's got this, and then he does become king. And towards the end of David's career, his youngest son, Absalom, uh, one of his many sons, rises up against him in rebellion, looking to take both David's throne and David's life. And it's at this moment that we read in 2 Samuel 17 that um, this looks like it's over for David. Uh, Things are not looking good for him. It looks like his son's going to take over. And they're meeting in this final battle of like Hunger Games style, like last man surviving wins kind of deal. And whoever gets it gets both the throne and the other guy dies. But the problem for David and his men is they had to march back to a long distance, long story short, and they are without food. They're hungry. They're thirsty. um, There's just no strength or nourishment to be able to go into this battle. And so, I'm going somewhere with this. 2 Samuel 17, 29 says it this way. Um, it says, my people, the people, David's people, have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. And then what happens next? What happens next, Bible scholars conclude, is the context for the line in Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies goes like this, 2 Samuel 17, 27 through 29. It says, when David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rajalim. I worked hard on that this week, folks. <laughs> it's hard work. The point here is verse 28, though. So all those guys, it says, They brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery, and they also brought wheat and barley and flour and roasted grain and beans and lentils and honey and curds and sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. Or as David would later write, 
literally in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table for me. And at that table, David and his men eat, they're nourished, they're strengthened, and they win that battle, they win that war to which then comes to fruition God's plan that David's son Solomon would take the throne and so on and so forth. We read throughout the history of the Bible. And so what we recognize is that regardless of the enemies that pull up a chair to your table, regardless of what table you end up, you can find a new table, but there'll always be enemies. Jesus didn't sugarcoat it. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. There will always be trouble. There will always be enemies. There will always be things we come against because there is an enemy, Satan. You know, for David, it was with swords and spears and shields and all of that. But for us, it says in Ephesians that our battle, it says it's not against flesh and blood. It says it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There will always be enemies as long as there is an enemy this side of heaven. But know this. This is the good news. This is the reality of the metaphor that David paints, is that even though we are seated in the presence of our enemies, that the host doesn't just prepare a table, well, the host also has a seat at the table. The host has a seat at the table. He doesn't have any seat at the table. He has the head of the table. He has the head of the table. And so our job, our responsibility, our opportunity, our gift in the God that we have is that when we are seated in the presence of our enemies is to ensure that our eyes are instead not here, but here. That we keep our eyes fixed on the host, on his right paths, on his ways, so that we might discover and experience the God who leads me, verse two, the God who guides me, verse three, the God who refreshes my soul, even in the presence of my enemies, prepares this table for me where my cup is overflowing because my eyes are focused on the shepherd. My eyes are focused on the host. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. And when that is our focus, when that is our attention, when the Lord is our shepherd and our host, verse six is the result. Surely your goodness then and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so that's the good news, that when the Lord is our host, the Lord is our shepherd, we get a new life, life and life to the full, both here on the planet, and then of course is fully realized in eternity in heaven. When the Lord is your shepherd and the Lord is your host. And so let's pray, both giving thanks for that reality and asking his Holy Spirit to help us live in that reality on the other 167 hours of the week outside of this hour together on a Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, the valleys, the thorns, the enemies, the furnaces that we face both in this room and in the east and in Lovington are, are numerous and they're hidden and they're, they're all over the place, God but you know them and you are there. You are guiding us through and you seat us in the midst of it with our opportunity to have our attention, our energy, our focus on you as our host. And so God, our prayer is, is that 
in the hours that fill the rest of our week, that you would draw us by the power of the Holy Spirit to that reality, that whatever it takes, whatever we need to fix our eyes on you, our host, uh, as we pray, as we look at your word, as we think about the company we keep, whatever it takes, God, to fix our eyes on you, even in the presence of our enemies. Um, We're forgetful people, God, and uh, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to prompt us, to lead us, to guide us, direct us to these green pastures, to the still waters that come when you are a shepherd and we lack nothing. So by your power, not our own, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you are serving communion, both here and in the East, as well as in Lovington, we'd invite you to do that now. I know Lovington, this is a change up for your normal order of service. But as we thought about this text, there was no way that we could go on and on and on about the shepherd of Psalm 23 and not draw an immediate conclusion about the good shepherd that we read about in Jesus Christ, the other side of the Psalm. As we said in John 10, 10, it says that this shepherd has come to give us life and life to the full. And then the very next verse, verse 11, says this, I am that shepherd that gives you life and life to the full. Actually, it doesn't say that I'm adding, but I'll read from the Bible. It says, I am the good shepherd. How good? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so it's like, wow, just when we didn't think it could get any better than Psalm 23, a, a shepherd that, a God that guides us and cares for us and directs us. We have a God that, uh, that is a shepherd that goes as far as to actually die for his sheep, to lay down his life is beyond comprehension. And just that alone is more than enough than all the other stuff. And so to ensure that we would never forget that reality of Jesus' sacrifice to make the forgiveness of all of our sin and our troubles and our valleys and our enemies and all that go away, both in this life and more so ultimately, he gave us this memorial to remember him and his sacrifice. That on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup saying, this is my blood poured out for you. And so do this in remembrance of me. And so may we do that as we pray, giving thanks for his sacrifice. Father, we're thankful for the goodness of who you are as a good shepherd, as a gracious host, and then beyond comprehension that you would send your one and only son to die, that you would choose to allow your son to lay down his life so that we could be given the gift of a new life and life to the full, both here and forevermore. Every response we have seems feeble, but we will do as you directed us. And we will remember and we will give thanks and we will worship by giving credit where credit is due as we remember your son's broken body and shed blood as we take the bread and we drink the cup. In Jesus' name we thank you, amen.